0: Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback.
1: May it please the court. My name is William Ashwell, here for the appellant. Jimmy Weatherholt, I want to apologize in advance. You can probably tell I'm a little bit under the weather, but nonetheless we carry forward. Um, this matters on appeal from the Board of Appeals narrowed to a specific issue um, on whether or not Mr. Weatherholt at the trial level was deprived of his right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. We've just heard a lengthy argument on the habeas petition. This, of course, is not the same, and under these circumstances is narrow to the issues <coughs> more particularly of whether or not he was deprived of counsel of what's quote-unquote determined a critical stage of proceedings at the trial level. Now, under the circumstances and the factual nuances of this particular case, what's not in dispute is for the pendency in the pretrial proceedings related to this instant prosecution for approximately two months, counsel was engaged on behalf of Mr. Weatherpool. This was from February 2017 until trial in April of 2017. Now, during this particular time, uh, Ms. Collette, who was engaged and retained counsel at that particular juncture, was suspended from the practice of law for an approximate total of 19 days. During that period of time, which was pursuant to what we would call kind of a traditional um, failure to respond to a subpoena during a disciplinary investigation process, there hadn't at that particular juncture been any sort of findings as to Ms. Collette, it was an investigation and in her failure to respond to valid subpoenas from the Virginia State Bar. During that particular juncture... There were two main uh, circumstances which raised the question of whether or not counsel. 1, which is going to be our consideration here today, whether or not a critical stage is the definition or what we would call uh, for this particular seating, whether it occurred during a critical stage, and then 2, whether Mr. Weatherholt was deprived of counsel, which would, of course, we would ask uh remand this case for a new trial. Under the circumstances, I believe what's clear here is that Mr. Weatherholt 1 made a particular appearance uh, before the court in which he, no one's going to argue, was without counsel as it was during one of the periods uh, of her suspension, Ms. Collette's suspension. During that particular period of time, uh, the court went through kind of a traditional soliloquy of asking uh, several questions of the litigant and whether or not he wanted to continue uh, with his current counsel, new counsel, kind of wanted to get an understanding uh, of what was going on. This occurred approximately six days uh, before trial that was scheduled in this matter. Now, under the circumstances of this case, it's a two-fold issue uh, that occurs here related to that request and that soliloquy. One... I think you mean colloquy. Colloquy, sorry. 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 <laughs> um, during that colloquy, sorry, Judge. Um, under the circumstances, there are two main issues uh, that pop up from that particular um, interaction with the court. In particular, it's whether or not under the circumstances... Uh, there should have been a situation in which Mr. Weatherhold. Weatherholt, is this a critical stage in which he should have had counsel? That's kind of a primary consideration. The Court of Appeals, of course, said no. They said, look, under the circumstances, looking at this dialogue between the court and this litigant, it was clear under the circumstances that he said, no, I want Ms. Collette, she's my, she's my attorney, uh, and I would disagree based on what's in the record. I think under the circumstances, the trial court said, we understand that Ms. Collette is suspended from the practice of law and ultimately is not in a position Uh, to represent you here today. Um, Mr. Mr. Weatherhall of course, said under that particular circumstance um, she's been paid. I don't have money for another lawyer uh, at that particular juncture. There's really nothing I can do uh, that I'm behind bars. And I think the Court of Appeals gave what I would say too much weight in finding that there really wasn't
2: any inferred prejudice at this critical stage. Um, What did you want the trial judge to do? The trial judge has got to figure out what to do. I've got a case on my docket and I've got this weird situation. So you call the person in and just say, what do you want to do? I, I agree that I think the trial
1: judge did the correct in asking and saying, essentially, uh, Mr. Defendant, what would you like to do? This is retained counsel. someone somewhat unique. I think right. if it was appointed, it would be a no-brainer. We appoint someone in their stead. Uh, I think that in this particular juncture, uh, the trial court, in all likelihood, given it six days before trial, um, and this will bleed into the second answer to that question, would be to go a step further and most likely appoint either standby counsel or or, or the public defender, for example. The guy didn't want a public defender. And and I agree. I think when read in whole, it's clear that he says, I want to continue with Ms. Collette, but I think in reading his responses particularly, he in fact says, frankly, I don't have enough money for another lawyer. I think that's under the circumstances when read in whole what that particular interaction
2: stood for. So the trial Um, judge should have found someone in the back of the courtroom immediately appointed them under the interesting statute against the wishes of the defendant who has retained counsel and is asking the court not to take that action. Correct. And the only difference I have, Your Honor,
1: in answering that question is I don't believe in reading that the back and forth. I agree that he said I want to continue in this plot. I do agree with that. But under the circumstances, I would disagree that he declined the appointment or other counsel appearing on his behalf. I don't think the court went that far. Um, and I think one of the most interesting Uh, parts of this entire interaction that kind of gets to the second part of why, one, I would deem this a critical stage, and two, I believe that it's clear that there's a deprivation of counsel, would be the comments made on the record by the Commonwealth's attorney in this particular case. And of course, it is a somewhat unique uh, situation at the trial court. It's not every day that there are status hearings to determine the licensure of counsel a week before trial. That's unique. And under the circumstances, and looking at some of the case law that we'll get to here shortly, both in Vanity Jones
2: uh, and some other progeny, Did anything happen at the April 21 status conference that had any effect whatsoever with the trial of the case?
1: Your Honor, what I would say in response to that particular question is yes. And, and what I would attribute particularly are the statements of the Commonwealth Attorney. And I think in that particular, at that hearing... Uh, in responding to kind of, you know, after the engage, Judge Iden asked Mr. Weatherall what you want to do, kind of looks to the and said, what's your position? You know, they they were candid and said, Judge, this doesn't happen every day, but I can't communicate with her. I can't even negotiate with
2: her. How did that have any effect on the trial? Did anybody at trial say, you know, I was willing to make a deal with her during the week that this person was out, two weeks she was out, but I'm not willing to make a deal now?
1: Correct, and I think that it does take some inference to answer that question. I don't think there's going to be a direct point in the record that's going to say uh, the only opportunity to make a plea was during that time, for example, that she was disbarred. Uh, But I think in this particular juncture, knowing the importance that we ascribe to uh, the Sixth Amendment under the circumstances, I think that could certainly be inferred, both from one, the length of time in which she was engaged on this case, vis-a-vis the length of time in which she was not licensed to practice law.
2: So would we make the same inference if a retained counsel took a a week long vacation and or had a trial in another court and couldn't deal with you know the Commonwealth attorney's plea bargaining for a week during the course of months heading into trial? And,
1: and I think that again, Your Honor, just trying to stick with the record, and I agree that that example specifically is is uh, a complicated one when you're assessing. Uh, the applicability under the circumstances of of counsel being able to communicate because as we all know in a criminal context especially the vast, vast, vast majority of these cases are done in fact by a plea uh, or some kind of plea agreement. So
3: so counsel when the commonwealth made that statement he did not have the benefit he actually was looking with foresight, did not have the benefit of 2020 foresight knowing how long the suspension would be. The suspension could have been... Beyond the trial date, it could have been for six months. It Correct. could have turned into a revocation. Who knows? Correct. Um, how many days after he made that, sus- that that statement did the suspension last? Approximately. Um, Your Honor, I
1: believe, um, in my review or recollection of the record, I believe it was lifted six days before uh, trial in that particular circumstance. So there was, there is going to be a time period in which he was licensed before trial, and I, and, okay. I, and I would concede that. I during notice. which
3: time, and during the time the counsel was suspended and she believed she was going to get readmitted or, or the suspension was going to be lifted, there was nothing that prevented her from preparing for trial. Correct. Is that correct? And in the last six days before trial there was nothing that prevented the two of them from discussing a plea agreement, even though when he made that statement he would not have known that to be the case. Correct. Okay.
1: And, and that and I will concede, and I think that's what a lot of districts and, and a lot of different courts are, are struggling with in ascribing kind of the balance of the critical stage versus the more practical nature of kind of what we're dealing with in a particular
2: case. I, I'd have to agree, under the circumstances, there was a time period she was licensed prior to trial. Are oh, my uh, notes right? I have nine days from April 12 to 21. Correct. Okay, well, am am I also about facts right? The status conference is April 21? Correct. Okay, then April 22, that doesn't take a whole lot of foresight, right? does not, no. So negotiations could have started April 22, the day after the critical, the sky is falling hearing. I I agree that at any point uh,
1: related to the discussions during our licensure, they could have taken place. Including April 22, the day after. I, I would agree. So I... I guess I think the difficult part is, is looking back in hindsight as we are now uh, in in dealing with these particular cases, um, I think the difficult decision that we're going to have is, one, I I think the court would take the position that all pretrial proceedings of any nature related to any type that's going to impact the rights of the litigant uh, or further um, going to cause any detriment to the defendant are, in fact, a critical stage. And to answer the, you know, getting away from just the plea negotiation, which I believe uh, Can I stop is you right there.
2: Even using that definition, how did what happened on the 21st fall into that category?
1: And I, th- and I think that takes the analysis that a, the court will uh, assumedly get to in this particular juncture Because I would put forth that on that April 21st, again, days before the scheduled trial in this particular case, a number of things could happen if counsel was in fact with the defendant. Not least. <laughs> Every uh, trial lawyer's favorite, at least in some jurisdictions, request in some way, shape, or form for a continuance. At that particular juncture, I think if counsel is by the defendant days before trial with knowledge about these suspensions during a significant portion of retained counsel's appearance, I think it begs the question that under the circumstances, is there really an ability of counsel at that time to be prepared for
2: trial—that's well, a habeas issue. That's not a Sixth Amendment issue.
1: And, and I, and Judge, and that's that's the difficult balance I believe, and I and I agree under the circumstances when we get to the preparedness and other things. And I think, as I've quoted at least the Sixth Circuit in the Van v. Jones case, which is what but again, the there was
3: nothing that prevented her from preparing.
1: Assumably, no. And, and also,
3: in reality, the, the trial was continued. Correct. Yeah. So for for I different reason, I, mean, right. I mean, I understand that you have to make every argument you can, but I don't. I, I'm glad that you're making the argument. Well, I could not have asked for a continuance fairly late in your uh, in your 15 minutes. the proceeding.
1: Well, counsel, so let
2: me ask. Oh, skip, yeah. okay. uh, if if this person doesn't have a uh, license to practice, right. is it practicing law for her to go to the Commerce Attorney and negotiate anything? Or to, or to interview witnesses. I mean, what in that practicing law?
1: Your Honor, I believe it absolutely is practicing law, especially as it comes to preparing witnesses and uh, engaging with what I would say third parties. I don't think there would be anything necessarily to keep her from sitting down at the kitchen table, for example,
3: and a mapping out a roadmap. But a paralegal can prepare a witness. Sorry. A paralegal can prepare a witness.
1: I, Anybody, can I agree. I, I, I agree and that happens often, even in my and firm.
3: The but, only thing that you can't do with no license is to go into court or represent yourself as a Virginia lawyer at that moment.
2: Correct. Okay.
1: And I, I think that begs the question: If does it meet the criteria of kind of practicing without a license, or the fact that that would impact um, her ability to prepare effectively if she is not licensed? And I think that that's a tough question to answer, but under the circumstances, I believe when you look at some of the other case law, including the Mitchell v. Mason case in which Van Jones relies on, I think looking at periods of suspension, courts are inclined to infer that during that particular period of time, this
2: unlicensed attorney is not going to be in a position uh, to continue to act in the same capacity. What about the same attorney who's got a week-long trial down the, down the hall in another courtroom? He, don't have, he doesn't have time to cut out of that trial and go sit down with a, uh, with a minor case with a commonwealth attorney that's got two, three weeks off, and I can get it continuous anyway. Mm-hmm. In other words, isn't this a lot to do about nothing? I, I, that's actually what I'm trying to get you to address.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass. And Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.
1: I think to answer the question is, is this not in fact a critical stage which would impact the defendant that this proceeding and her suspension is not important? I think to answer that question, I think you have I, I would take the position that one there are, whether frankly direct or indirect, negative impacts on this defendant from the appearance on april twenty first. What, um, what are
2: they? Just name them.
1: And, <coughs> and I think complaints. that, again, it's asking for, through counsel, appropriate relief at April 21st. Again, kind of ignoring what I can see. It was continued into May after the April appearance. But I think that when you have a litigant who's forced to appear, and I say forced only by the fact that he's come to the status conference. His retained lawyer is not uh, somebody who's now licensed to practice law. But there are a series of decisions at that particular time. Again, when his... his um, his freedom is is really in limbo
2: in which I counsel would be in a position because the bottom line, how did that affect him having a fair trial in the final analysis? I guess this is what I really would want to hear you explain. And thing,
1: really what it comes down to in, in the courts, various courts, not only this court's analysis of what the critical stages are I think the problem that you have is the inference, whether direct or indirect, that unlicensed counsel during critical periods of pretrial in this particular case are, in fact, going to impact, especially right before trial, the ability to make certain decisions and do things for the best interest of the litigant before trial.
4: May I ask a, just a factual, quick, factual question? Um, the uh, April 21st um, transcript reflects that the case was going to be continued to Tuesday to inquire what's happening. That would have been April 25th. The next thing I have in the record, I don't have it. Is there a transcript or anything that shows what happened on the 25th? I don't
1: believe I actually, I don't think there was a transcript from the 25th, am yeah, I, I It's recall. just this
4: gap, and then we pick up in the appendix anyway on April 27th, which is a few days down the road. I just didn't right. know if there was anything in the record that shows whether anything happened on that 25th Tuesday.
1: And the only, and again, and I'll be candid, this is just from recollection, but I believe that Tuesday hearing was not in fact uh was it called on the docket I believe they addressed more or less ex parte her license status right without the necessity of a hearing. Yeah that's, that's my under understanding that's logical the, the I just didn't
4: know if there was anything that you had seen okay. that might illuminate. I don't have okay. any of okay. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel good morning for court
5: I'm Victoria Johnson for the Commonwealth. Um I'm going to focus on that April 21st hearing, since that's kind of where our argument focused um, a moment ago. As we argued on briefs, the April 21st hearing was not a critical stage of the trial. Um, this court has recognized, and other courts have recognized, that there's not a simple definition for what a critical stage is. Generally, courts look at whether it is a step of the criminal proceeding that holds significant consequences for the defendant, or whether there is um, a likelihood of substantial prejudice to the defendant's rights during the particular confrontation and the ability of counsel to avoid that prejudice. April 21st, com- the April 21st hearing just was not that kind of hearing. Here, the trial court was made aware that there was a problem with the attorney, the defense attorney. Didn't really know what the nature of that problem was at that point. Um, I think later on we discovered that it had to do with um, failure to comply with subpoena to satecum, I don't believe that the record indicates that the court even knew the nature of what that investigation was. So at that point, the court is kind of between a rock and a hard place. We have this um, criminal defendant who has retained counsel of his choice, and he has a right to that, and we have a a difficulty with that counsel of his choice. There's no motion to disqualify from the Commonwealth. There's no motion to withdraw from defense counsel. So the court needs to know what this defendant wants to do court brings him in and says, what would you like to do? And he says, well, I really don't have a whole lot of money, uh, Given being very generous, I, I've already given her my money, I, I don't want to delay, I want to get this over with, and the court says, well, if she's ready to go, if she's got her bar situation settled, what do you want to do? He says, I want to go forward court says, sure, the court's not going to interfere in that attorney client privilege. Well, but did the patent. court even
4: do that? I mean, so if you, um, what, what the court concludes with at, on April 21 yeah. is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue your case to yeah. Tuesday. So I think, I mean, this is, a, it seems to me, a contextual inquiry. And, and if we know, for example, conclusively, counsel is suspended for the indefinite future. Do you want to be pro se? Do you want to hire a new lawyer? Do I need to appoint one? Well, that's different than the court saying, hey, here we are on a Thursday. I'm trying to sort this out. We're going to come back Tuesday morning, and she's going to tell us whether she's admitted to practice law. So it doesn't fit tidally into the status conference uh, box, but that seems like the closest analog were a number of persuasive, and we're not bound by them, but persuasive courts have said for status conferences, it's not a critical stage. This is a little more than that because we're asking of the defendant what the defendant wants to do, but it seems closely analogous given what the court is actually contemplating.
5: And that, that was kind of my argument on the brief, Your Honor, and and I think that as the court just said, it's close to a status conference. The court set it out and said, well, let's find out what's going to happen next. But at this moment, what do you want to do? I want to go forward with, with, my, with my counsel. I want to keep my counsel at this moment. But well, we're going to wait till the Tuesday. The court asked the question, the factual question about what happened that day. My recollection from the record is that there was a, a phone call, perhaps, and that they sell, like, there was a call into the clerk's office? I mean,
4: just looking at the appendix, I, it just goes from um, the conclusion of the April 21st hearing, there's an order that's cut based on that, okay. and then we begin, in the appendix anyway, within the 28th, which is a few days down the road, and council is then present. Yes. Um, and, and
5: there was not, I, I did look in the record, there was not a transcript or an order for the 25th. Right. Um, And then they went to the 27th, the court couldn't sit a jury because there weren't enough qualified jurors, so there wound up being a continuance to May 10th. And I think kind of going to some of counsel's arguments, we can look at the not guilty plea policy at that ultimate trial, and we know that and there's nothing in the record really to contradict this. We know that he talked to his attorney. He said that I had enough time to talk to my attorney. I was able. But to isn't go. the problem with that when yeah. if it is a
4: critical stage, we can't get into prejudice? Well, that's
5: true. So that's the not, peculiarity
4: of that um, a particular doctrine.
5: I think that yes, your honor, I understand that. But I think that counsel has argued somewhat that there was a lack of. Preparation during the entire pretrial period. Well, prejudice and, is
2: required as a as a showing categorically. Is this yes. the kind of proceeding? I'm not making a harmless error. I'm no, not right. making a
5: harmless error argument. I'm making an argument that there was not the inherent prejudice that you have to show for there to be a critical stage.
4: Right. This type of hearing this type is of hearing. not analogous to those in which the court has said. Categorically, the danger is so great that um, we're not even. Don't even tell us about prejudice.
5: Yes, and I think that the more I'm talking, the more I'm getting myself into trouble. So I think that I will move along. <laughs> um, going to the um, the the case that that the defense relies on from the Sixth Circuit, I wanted to just very briefly um, distinguish that. That case involved a homicide prosecution. There was about a 30-day suspension period within a seven-month representation. But importantly, the Sixth Circuit didn't rely solely on that 30-day suspension. Instead, they highlighted that the defense attorney, and this came out in a habeas hearing, that the defense attorney only spent six minutes with his client to prepare the case. That was the real problem there. We don't have those facts here. as, as I've argued, this wasn't a critical stage. Um, there was no prejudice to the to the defendant, to the defendant's rights, and I ask the court for a conviction. All right. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Court is adjourned until tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock a.m. All right. Would
0: you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021.